0: Hey guys, it's Dr. Childs here today. I am joined with Dr. Anshul Gupta. Dr. Anshul Gupta is a best-selling author, speaker, researcher, and expert in Hashimoto's disease. He's board certified in family medicine with training in functional medicine, integrative medicine, and peptide therapy. He previously worked at the Cleveland Clinic Department of Functional Medicine alongside Dr. Mark Hyman and has most recently published a book called reversing Hashimoto's, which of course we're going to be talking about today. So Dr. Gupta, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show. You guys are doing an amazing job. A lot of good information you're sharing. So I'm privileged to be here.
0: Awesome. I think we're going to have a really good conversation. So obviously today we're going to be talking a lot about reversing Hashimoto's. This is something that a lot of patients who have this condition, they worry about, right? Um, and I want, I want to get into sort of the conventional side of things, how people view Hashimoto's thyroiditis, especially MDs um, and conventional type of doctors. And I want to talk about your approach. But before we do that, could you just sort of give an introduction about you um, you know, what got you into medicine and functional medicine and sort of how you how you ended up where you're at right now?
1: Absolutely. So actually my story starts off at you know I was having my own health issues after uh, working as a pretty busy primary care physician. Mm-hmm. So I was just into like you know a couple of years into my primary care practice after my residency and I started having issues with my gut. I was having this horrible stomach pain. The pain was so bad that sometimes I will have to double over in the pain. And even thought about going to the emergency room, but I knew that emergency room doctors could not do anything except for giving me pain medications and just send me home. And then after that, you know, I was having more health problems. I was feeling fatigued or tired to the point that sometimes I even have to take a nap during my lunch hour just to function during the whole day. Mm -hmm. I was actually brain foggy at the end of the day that, okay, after I'm done with the day, I was just, I just cannot think about anything else except for just go to bed and sleep. I was gaining weight you know like crazy even though i have not changed my diet mm-hmm. so all of those things were going on and nobody had an idea what was going on with me thought i thought i'm my own physician let me fix myself i started taking some medications to improve my gut issues did not work i thought i'm not smart enough let me go to these specialists who can fix me mm-hmm. so i went to specialists after specialist, and they did multiple testing endoscopies blood work ultrasounds All the tests that you can think about, everything was normal. Nobody could figure out what was going on. And they kept on piling more and more medications on me, but nothing was working. I was the same miserable man. And I was just 32 years of age at the time. I was like, wow, really have to live my life this way with taking more than six medications in a day and having random pain all my life. And just my quality of life was so miserable. Mm -hmm. I was totally hopeless at the time. So that's the time actually somebody introduced me to functional medicine. So I got trained into functional medicine, actually, you know, like did some of the modules on the gut health and all those things. Mm-hmm. I started implementing, you know, like, first of all, I tried to find my root cause of what was going on with me, why I'm feeling this way. So I found my root cause that I was a lot of inflammation in my gut. You know, I had food sensitivities problem. My adrenals were completely shot. So I started working on all those things, you know, with supplements and a whole plan. Within one month, my pain was completely gone. Within six months, I was off all medications. I lost more than 40 pounds. Oh, nice. you know, I had more energy in my life than I ever had. I even did a 5K rugged maniac, awesome. which I never thought I would do. So that was the power of functional medicine that actually changed my life. Mm-hmm. So that's where I decided, okay, I need to share this with all of my clients, all of my patients, because this is huge. This can be life changer. Mm-hmm. So when I started working in the clinical clinic function medicine department, That's where I was seeing the same, you know, like plight that was happening with Hashimoto's patients. Mm -hmm. They were all taking medication. They were all doing the right thing they were supposed to do, but still they were miserable. They had weight issues. They were all fatigued. They were all brain foggy. They had, you know, like, you know, gut issues. All of those problems that I had, they have all of those problems, but nobody could help out. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started my research into, in like, you know, Hashimoto's disease, why they are not feeling better. And I made my own protocol to start helping them out as soon as I started implementing the protocol, everything changed in their life. They were feeling so great. We were getting so getting good results. And that's where I started doing like, you know, seeing more and more Hashimoto's patients and thought about writing the book so I can let people know that there is a hope for them to get better.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting that you talked about that. So we'll talk about the Hashimoto's in a second, but, um, so you are the third physician now that I've talked to that had the same sort of issues with gut problems and adrenal fatigue and burnout must be something about residency, lack of sleep, not eating, probably eating very healthy food, something about that, that causes gut issues because there's a, I had another, uh, MD on who, who had the same exact thing, almost the exact same thing happened to me. I had diagnosed myself with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to be treated, um, adrenal fatigue, etc. So it must be a pretty, pretty common thing. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, patients with Hashimoto's absolutely have a lot of similar issues, which I'm sure we'll be talking about adrenal function, gut health, etc. Um, before we talk about that though, I'm really interested to hear. So, from the perspective of a patient, like we're, we're talking now about Hashimoto's patients, um, when you look at conventional medicine, um, when we talk if these patients were to, to go to a conventional doctor and they were to, and they get diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the the general consensus among these types of doctors, and you had training in this in family medicine, so you're probably familiar with this, it's really a sit and wait approach it's uh, let's just wait until your, your thyroid becomes destroyed by your immune system so that we can put you on thyroid medication. but other than that, there is no treatment, right The actual immune autoimmune aspect of Hashimoto's is, is left unchecked really. and so um, I want to kind of get your thought and opinion on that. so how was it coming from conventional medicine where the, the dogma was don't treat the autoimmune aspect? In fact, most doctors would say it's not even treatable, right? They would just say, no, there's nothing you could do about this to then functional medicine, which more, I mean, if we're talking about reversing Hashimoto's, a lot of the therapy is going to be focused on the immune system. So how did you make that transition from the conventional side to the more functional medicine side? I'm interested to hear sort of how that change occurred in your mind.
1: I mean, I was also a primary care physician for a long time. So mm-hmm. I had the same training that, you know, you shared about. That, okay, well, don't check for Hashimoto's. There is no right. reason to check for those antibodies. Why would you check those? If the thyroid levels are fine, nothing can be done. You know, we don't have the medications right now to shut off the immune system or modify the immune system so that we can, we can safeguard the thyroid gland. So, you know, like the doctors have been ingrained, okay, if there is no medicine for it. There is no treatment for it and nothing right. can be done. So that was like, you know, I was very traditional in that sense. But then, you know, like when I started exploring functional medicine, doing research behind it, I saw that we had so much research you know, which talks about this Th1, Th2 responses and a lot of immunological modulators which are happening in Hashimoto's and now there are things which can be done to modify the immune system so they can safeguard the thyroid gland. So first of all, I was totally, completely shocked. I was like, we have so much research and nobody's talking about it and you know, none of the medical school, we have been taught that there is a hope that these Hashimoto's patients can be actually saved from going to destruction of the thyroid gland and landing up it as a hypothyroid patient. Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about it. Right. So that's where actually I said, okay, well, let me look more and make sure that I'm looking at the right places. So I looked at the research studies and the research studies are so phenomenal that, okay, there are so many things, whether they are supplements, whether they are minerals, whether there are other therapies that can be done to control this inflammation in, in Hashimoto's patients and can improve it. And then I, when i developed my own protocol, I started implementing it, saw phenomenal results. The antibody levels went down, you know, like the thyroid numbers improved, their symptoms improved. In fact, I was, oh, I was actually offering to do a research study with an endocrine doctor said that, well, you treat heart c patients conventional way. let me treat it with a conventional and a functional medicine way with my protocol. And let's see what the numbers show. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. nobody like, you know, would like to do the comparison. They said, no, 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 you know, like, we don't want to do it. We are very happy with what we have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of funny that way. And that's why I wanted to bring that up because patients, when they go to their doctor, there's a lot of inherent trust with the physicians that they get treated by. Right. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this, right? People come to you um, and they respect and they honor your opinion, right? It's like, okay, well, if this doctor is telling me that there's nothing I can do, well, then there must not be nothing. I There must not be anything that can be done here. Right. But the, the truth is there can be. And so what I want to do is the way that I kind of think about this, and I want to get your feedback sort of on this uh, methodology of sort of thinking about it, but I really think of Hashimoto's disease as both an odd one, immune component as well as a thyroid disease and what really you kind of have to it depends on the person and kind of where they're at but eventually over time there will if if it's not if the autoimmune aspect is not treated it will result in complete destruction of the thyroid gland over some period of time usually decades something like that so depending on where you're at in this in this uh this disease progress, you know, this disease state, whether you're early stage or late stage kind of changes how you view it, but that doesn't really change the fact that there's both the immune aspect and the thyroid thyroid aspect that you need to be, that need to be treated sort of simultaneously is how I look at it. Is that sort of how you're thinking about treating Hashimoto's and reversing Hashimoto's? Absolutely. You know, as you correctly said that,
1: you know, the initial process is the inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. And inflammation ultimately leads to the thyroid destruction. So then we obviously have this hormonal dysfunction going along with the inflammation, which is causing it. So I feel, you know, as you correctly said, that we have to address both of those things. So when the conventional may, we are pumping people with just more thyroid hormone, it is taking care of, let's say one aspect of things, but totally ignoring the other aspect, which is the inflammation piece of it. Mm -hmm. So unless both of those things are addressed, people with Hashimoto's do not feel better. Because that unchecked inflammation first is is destroying the thyroid gland, but ultimately is going to destroy the other parts of the body, including your mitochondria and other things. So that's the reason once you have one Hashimoto's, then over the course of decade or two decades, you actually start having more and more autoimmune conditions, which are happening in your body. So we have to prevent more autoimmune conditions. We have to safeguard the body as well as start making it feel better by actually working on the thyroid too.
0: Okay. No, I, I appreciate that, that explanation. and I, I totally agree with that. Um, I want to talk about definition here just for a second. So would you say that Hashimoto's in general is a reversible condition um, or that it can be, quote, cured? Like, what, what, how, how do you frame sort of that when you're talking to patients? How do you think about that?
1: Right. So, you know, again, in like all these medical terminology that we have are totally deceiving in terms of our understanding, because what we feel is that once a person gets an autoimmune condition, it's, it's uncurable or it is right. not reversible. So the way I'd kind of look at it is that, you know, i give an example is that, let's say a person gets pneumonia. Pneumonia is a bacterial infection of your lung. So you get exposed to bacteria, that particular bacteria, you get pneumonia. You get antibiotics, you get treated. So technically you are cured, but that doesn't mean that you cannot get pneumonia again if you do get exposed to that bacteria again in the future. Right? So that means that, okay, in like we got cured with pneumonia, but can we get it again? Yes. So then how is it cured, right? Mm -hmm. So same with Hashimoto's. There are triggers that causes Hashimoto's in people's body. Those can be toxins, infections, you know, Epstein Barr virus, or you know, other things. And we, when people get exposed to it, when we work on those root causes of the problem, people with Hashimoto's gets better. Their symptoms get better. Their thyroid numbers get back to normal. You know, their antibody levels gets better. So those people, you know, like certainly are basically for my side is reversed. Now in the future, if they get exposed to any of those triggers again let's say another infection, let's say another bacteria, yes, they can get like a bout of Hashimoto's again, mm-hmm. you know, if they're not careful with that. But then again, if they focus on that particular trigger and they treat it, you know, then again, they're reversed of it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a reversible condition because now I know what is causing it and I can work towards it and I can actually improve the thyroid numbers. So for me, that's a reversible condition.
0: Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I, I think that there are, are metrics to use that you can follow the patient to determine how well they're responding to the therapies that you're using. Um, now, I think the real thing that we need to talk about is how does somebody, how does a patient actually go about reversing it? Because we already talked about the conventional side of things, right? The conventional doctor, if anything, right? If they're gonna do anything, it's going to be thyroid medication, probably in the form of levothyroxine, right? And as we discussed, you have that autoimmune component, which includes like the inflammatory pathways and so on. And then we have the thyroid component, which your doctor says, okay, well, let's give you some level thyroxine. We'll control the thyroid aspect somewhat, right? Because they don't even always control that very well. But there are plenty of other things over here for the autoimmune component with the inflammatory cascades and all the other aspects that we're going to be talking about. So let's sort of talk about that. So when you partition it in sort of your brain as a patient, you're thinking about this, there's two areas that need to be focused on. And the good news is there are a lot of things that the patient can do on the inflammatory side. So you mentioned before you were talking about root causes, and these are the things that trigger Hashimoto's. So maybe could you go into a little more detail about those triggers? What are the most common types of triggers that patients might um, interact with or might trigger their Hashimoto's? And maybe if these are preventable, we can talk about that as well. But let's let's talk about the triggers for just a second.
1: Absolutely. So I actually categorize these triggers into five big categories. So very first category is food sensitivities, you know, like food is medicine, but food can also harm a lot of people's body. Sure. These are different than food allergies where people will eat a peanut you know, blow up like a balloon and land up in the hospital. That's not the case. These food sensitivities are foods like gluten, dairy, soy, corn, you know, processed food that we have in our environment, which has been processed so much that, you know, we don't have it original form. So most people, you know, like, you know, uh, react to those foods and create food sensitivities. These food sensitivities lead to leaky gut and obviously lead to trigger of Hashimoto's. That's a very big category that we are seeing. The second category that we're seeing is nutritional deficiencies. Our food actually is deficient in nutrients. There was a research study done from 1990s to like, you know, the present day that in they check for nutritional quality of the food, which has been grown. And they were shocked to see that the nutritional component of our current food is actually much lower than, you know, what it used to be. So even though we are eating, you know, like the right foods, but our body is not getting the right nutrients. And that again, thyroid or, or our body needs right vitamins, minerals, and all those things to function. And that's the reason when we are low on those, that again leads to a trigger of Hashimoto. So that's the second big category. Yeah. The third category is stress. Yeah. You now, whether that yeah. is emotional stress, physical stress, psychological stress, we all get exposed to stress all the time. We are living in a corporate world currently, and corporate world is that you know stress is good for you because stress improves your performance. But stress is not good for your body in the long-term basis. It basically destroys your body from inside and again leads to trigger of Hashimoto's. The fourth category is toxins. You know, we have so many toxins. Each and every day, we are getting more and more chemicals pumped into our environment, which all start harming our body over the course of time. Whether that is heavy metals, mold toxins, very big issue. We are seeing so many of our clients with Hashimoto's have mold toxins and they have no idea about that, that they're causing the problems, environmental toxins. So that's the very fourth big category about it the fifth category is infections you know there are so many infections that we go through whether there is viral infections like you know epsin bar virus which again trigger hashimoto's whether those are parasites in your gut you know which can trigger hashimoto's then the chronic infections like lyme disease or other core infections those can again trigger hashimoto's So that's the you know like the, again the fifth category so as you will see these are the big five categories which have identified that are the major trigger for hashimoto's for people that we see on a regular basis
0: mm-hmm. Now, when you are looking at this, so essentially what you're saying is, if I'm understanding you correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, that these triggers are the, are the things that really sort of incites the Hashimoto's or the initial sort of uh, precipitating event, which causes the downstream triggers, which, occur, which results in Hashimoto's thyroiditis in the patient. So the idea is if you can address these things, whatever one is specific to you, then you might be able to halt that pathway or the progression of the disease. Is that generally in a nutshell, kind of what we're advocating here? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And then I guess my next question would be, um, and I totally agree with this, by the way, you know, I'm just sort of just clarif- clarifying. Um, when it comes to these triggers, which ones do you think are the most common? And if possible, do you think some people have more than one of these things at once? Or do you think it's just like a, you know, well, stress might be the main one? Or do you think food sensitivities may also compete with toxins or, you know, things like that? How do you, how do you view that when you're looking at patients?
1: So I mean initially I thought actually, you know, like the food sensitivities will be the number one trigger, but mm-hmm. now actually I'm realizing toxins are the number one triggers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Seventy plus percent of my clients, you know, it's a toxins which are causing the issues, whether that is heavy metals or mold or environmental. So time and again, you know, that's the first test that I go over, like ordering with a lot of my clients of checking their toxins to make mm-hmm. sure that is not the issue. And the second after that comes the stress you know, especially in the recent, like in you know, the past couple of years with the pandemic going on, you know, like more and yeah. more people are stressed out about a whole bunch of things. So that definitely doesn't help their adrenals and definitely cause an uptake of the Hashimoto's disease. But I will say time and again, number one reason is toxins. You know, I see it so many times that mojo- majority of my clients will have toxin as a, as a trigger.
0: Okay. And how are you testing for these, um, these toxins? What tests are you using?
1: Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, there is not one test to check for all the toxins, right. so we have to do multiple tests. So one test is to check for heavy metals, mm-hmm. you know, like lead and mercury. So generally, I use a urine for that. But sometimes I also use hair analysis as a way to check for to- like you know, heavy metals. Mm-hmm. The second is the mole toxins. Again, you know, that's a urine test to check for mold toxins in the urine. And the third is the environmental toxins, which is a big panel, which checks for a whole bunch of toxins, which are in our environment, which we know can again, trigger a lot of issues, which again is the urine test, which can do it. Now there are not many companies doing it. Only a handful of companies are doing these tests. Uh, So that's the reason we, we have access to those and then people can get it done. The good part is that these are at home kits. So people can actually do it, write it in their home and ship the kit back to the company. So they don't even have to go to a lab to do it.
0: Okay. And when you're, when you see somebody has exposure to these toxins, to heavy metals, et cetera, what sort of things are you recommending patients do this so they can eliminate these things? Do we have certain therapies, you know, sauna therapy or chelation therapy? Or are you kind of going down that path? Um, or are you leaning more towards just avoiding the exposure of them and just identifying that they're present and then eliminating them? Um, what type of, what type of treatments and therapies do you see the most success with?
1: Right. So first of all, you know, like knowing what kind of toxins people have, mm-hmm. and then, you know, like deciding on what is the best course of action. But doesn't matter what toxins they have. The first thing which I do is that I optimize five different detox channels that we all have in our body. Mm -hmm. So the five detox channels, the first detox channels is, as you said, you know, is the sweating. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where the saunas are very helpful. You know, infrared saunas do a wonderful job in kind of eliminating the toxins in a more like, you know, natural fashion. So that's the one thing that, you know, I recommend my patients to do. The second way we detoxify is through our gut. So I optimize everybody, you know, for having at least one bowel movement every day, so that we can eliminate those toxins through our gut. Optimizing the gut channel. The second, the third thing is the kidneys. So making sure people are drinking enough you know, water, so that we can eliminate those kidney, like you know toxins from the kidneys. Also, mm. the fourth, you know, that we have is uh, through our lymphatic channels. Mm. You know, which is again the most underappreciated, like you know, detox channels that we have. But dry brushing is a good way of helping people to kind of detoxify those lymphatic channels. So that's something that we do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are, have access to like special kind of massages, then we can mm-hmm. always do that. But dry brushing is a good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the last one is the liver. So liver is again a master detoxifier. So again, we have to optimize liver for doing that. We can start with like some detox like you know, detox teas with them, you know, like, you know, uh, green tea is a good way to detoxify. There are certain supplements like glutathione, which is also good to, you know, support the liver. Curcumin is another one, which is good for that. Mm-hmm. So some of the supplements, we start them for doing that. So these are the five basic things that each and every person doesn't matter which toxins they have i always recommend doing them so that they can get started on it but then after that you know depending on which let's let's say they have heavy metals then we start doing specific therapies to remove the heavy metals which is like chelation or other things for that mold is actually much more difficult to treat right because mold only just doing the detox doesn't work for them mold actually hides in people's body so we have to work on their biofilms Mold actually causes a SERS kind of situation, which is called CIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Mm-hmm. So, we have to work on the SERS, actually bring it down. So, we need to work on that also, the biofilm, as well as, you know, we have to actually work on killing the mold from the system. So, that is a little bit more complicated and takes a longer time.
0: Yeah, I think actually you, you've you brought up a really good point here, and that is the detoxification sort of pathway, and, and I, I actually really appreciate what you've talked about here, these five ways that you can eliminate things. I think, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a huge problem for lots of patients with Hashimoto's and really, really, really underappreciated in terms of its benefit and effectiveness. Um, I actually recently purchased a far-infrared sauna. Is that the sauna therapy that you're generally recommending? as a far-infrared or STEAM? Oh,
1: yep. No, no, far infrared. If far infrared. they can afford it and they can get access mm-hmm. to far infrared, that is much, much better than the regular sauna.
0: Yeah, that's my belief as well. I think the far infrared has deeper penetration and helps with detoxification mm-hmm. and it's it's been amazing. And so I think that a lot of people underestimate how many things they're coming into contact with that just need to be eliminated on a daily basis. You know, regular things, lotions, uh, soaps, detergents. All the things that you put in your body, I think people are like have a tendency to think, well, it's, I didn't actually ingest it. Therefore, it didn't go inside my mouth. Therefore, it's not in my body. But we have transdermal absorption of things, right? You know, things go through lotions, creams, um, makeup, even all of these things have certain chemicals in your body. And people kind of, this detoxification pathway sort of has this woo-woo sense to it where it's like, oh, well, this isn't a real thing. You know, it's like, or, or in other words, your body can take care of it. And I think for, the, for, for a lot of people, that's true. But because of the variance in genetics, there are some people who are just naturally going to be slightly less they're not going to be as good at, as eliminating these things as other people. And these are the people that are going to accumulate these things over a period of time, which is probably why, you know, after 20, 30 years of just small amounts of accumulation, it just builds up to a point that then it becomes a problem. And so the detoxification pathways that you mentioned, I think are really underappreciated. And I really like that you talked about the lymphatic channels, um, as well, because I, 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 being an osteopathic physician and doing a lot of osteopathic therapy, um, manual therapy, I can appreciate the lymphatic channels as well. And those are really, really underappreciated by most people. Cause I, you know, doctors will talk about arteries and veins, but the lymphatic channels are there, you know, this is anatomy 101, right? Um, And they don't, I don't know if you, if you guys talked about it in family medicine, like in residency or not, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's really talked about unless you have, you know, cancer uh, or radical mastectomy that resulted in, you know, lymphatics being taken out and you have lymphedema or something like that, right? Like, I don't think it's really talked about in conventional medicine unless you can think of a situation in which it is.
1: No, 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 it is not ever talked about it. You know, we always learn about it in med school. Okay, this mm-hmm. channel exists, but then suddenly it just goes away. You know, yeah. like Because pathology, we know about it and okay, well, it's just a useless channel. Let's just forget about it. Yeah. Unless like you said, you know, there is a big lymphedema, like, you know, issue that happens mm-hmm. with that or maybe in some cancer patients where the lymphatic channels are important. But again, you know, like there is nothing done to improve them. Basically right. there's looked at them and then kind of again, uh, you know, like for lymphedema, definitely, right. you know, there are good therapies which are available, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. otherwise, you know, we just don't pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, I think the idea is it exists, but it's like, okay, the body must be taken care of it. Just like it would in the sense of detoxification, like the liver exists and it, and the, the mindset, I think of the conventional side as well, it's doing its job. It's getting rid of everything that's there. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of reasons that the liver may not be functionally optimal, optimally. And a lot of that, I mean, we just know statistically speaking that there's a ton of insulin resistance and insulin resistance hits the liver, right? So you can see that in elevations of AST and ALT and other liver enzymes, which obviously if there's some problem with these, the liver cells themselves, they're not going to be functioning at 100%. Maybe it's 95% or 92% or 90%, but that's still a slight deficit from where it needs to be. And therefore a slight deficit in its ability to get rid of some of these things. At least that's how I wrap my head around this thing. Um, so I, I actually really appreciate you bringing all these topics up because these are huge i think for people for patients and really underappreciated right I, r- I really think they are and especially on the conventional side but even probably a little bit on the functional medicine side you know because you have variability in terms of training and and how people are practicing and whatnot so um i do like that i do want to touch that ba- base on the food aspect a little bit um because you talked about some of these food sensitivities i want to dive a little deeper into the food sensitivities because again i think this is another really important thing now when i talk to patients almost everybody's always telling me they're eating really healthy, right? Like everyone is saying, "Ah, I'm eating healthy. It must not be my diet. It's gotta be something else. Um, So maybe you could talk a little bit from from the perspective of Hashimoto's. What are the primary drivers, the the main things that you see in terms of food sensitivities that patients really need to avoid, or at least the most of them should be avoiding or at least think about avoiding?
1: Yeah, no, again, like very important part, you know, because as you said, each and every patient of mine, when they come to see me, oh, you know, like food is not my problem. I eat Mm. just the cleanest diet. And I said, well, Yes, I understand you're eating clean, but you're not eating it appropriately for your Hashimoto's. Yeah. But again, you're like, you know, our nutritional information that has been given by mainstream, you know, media or other channels is so lacking. Mm-hmm. Now, we're always talking about calories. We are talking about, okay, well, what is how much calorie goes in? We are talking about macros in terms of those things. Nobody's talking about the quality of food. What food nourishes your body? That's the more important thing. And the second thing is that we're not talking about food, which is hurting your body. Mm-hmm. So we definitely need to remove the food which is hurting your body, which most people don't do that. People are more focused on ingesting food which is healthy for their body, but don't pay attention to foods to, to, to remove that from their body. Mm-hmm. So in that you know aspect, I, I researched and you know, I looked at certain foods, you know, especially you know like gluten, mm-hmm. dairy, you know soy, corn, processed meat, processed food sugary foods, you know, like those are all definitely like, you know, top on the list, which definitely cause big triggers for Hashimoto's. And definitely I recommend all of my clients to like remove them from the diet completely. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they tell them, okay, reduce, like, you know, remove them. They think they somehow hear it, reduce them. (laughs) Sure. You know, I'm not eating gluten. I said, okay, well, okay, you're not eating gluten, but I see your food list. Uh, you know, your dietary chart and you did mention that you're eating bread or like, you know, some other form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just eating it one piece a day. That's it. Okay. Well, that is still gluten. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, like people love cheeses, you know, like, so it's very difficult for them to give up cheese. They said, okay, I'm dairy free, but I you eat cheese that is not dairy free. Right. So it's very important for those Hashimoto's patients to eliminate those foods completely from there, not, not reduce it.
0: Yeah, I definitely see that as well. I And it just seems to be a problem, I guess. I'm glad I'm not the only one that has experienced it. But food is so important, as you mentioned. It's, But I do think there's two aspects, the two sides of this. It's the food you put in your body and the food that you avoid. Um, so I, I do want to talk about that because I think this will tie in a little bit to fasting because we have the food, the healthy and the quality of the food that you put into your body. And then you're talking about the removal of food, but I'm also talking about the absence of food, periods of periods of time in which you go without eating um, in the form of fasting. But before we talk about that as a potential, you know, sort of treatment therapy type of thing, um, I want to talk about food. So you mentioned previously, is the main, ish, the main thing you're worried about with these foods, is it triggering of, the inf- trigger, triggering of inflammation in the body? Is it triggering of leaky gut? Is it triggering of molecular mimicry and, and you know, exacerbating existing Uh, pathways that already exist like how do you what do you think is the main issue with eating these foods how does it how does it damage the body for these people who are consuming these foods they shouldn't be
1: right so the main reason is actually causing the leaky gut you know like you know these foods because of they have been genetically modified so much uh that you know like our body cannot recognize them anymore so once they enter the body then you know we start producing these antibodies which actually destroy our own gut and leads to the leaky gut so that's the main, you know, problem that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. And the molecular mimicry sometimes happens with certain foods, you know, not with mm-hmm. everything. Sometimes gluten can cause it, you know, which is, can, it can molecularly mimic, you know, like certain cells in our body mm-hmm. and and can enter it. And then when our body tries to fight against it, actually destroy the thyroid gland. Mm-hmm. So certainly we see that, but the major reason which I feel or which is ongoing is a leaky gut, which is caused by these foods, which ultimately end up, end up causing the Hashimoto's disease.
0: Yeah. And as you have the leaky gut, you have endotoxins that are entering. You have the potential for particles that may result in molecular mimicry and so on. And just so anybody who isn't familiar perhaps with the idea of molecular mimicry, or I'm sure you know what leaky gut is, but leaky gut is the the uh, separation of the tight junctions inside of the gut, which are supposed to protect your body, like the, the inside of your body, even though you think about the gut is really a tube, right? It actually isn't the inside, even though it kind of is the inside of your body, but it protects the actual inside of your body um, from things that you don't want to get in. And so when you have leaky gut, which is really just damage down there, you have a separation of these junction, which allows things to get in that shouldn't be there. And this concept of molecular mimicry, I think was more popular, maybe about 20, 30 years ago, but it was the idea of what triggered Hashimoto's. And the the idea was, well, if you have damage to the gut, you let some particles of food come into your body or or bacteria, some particle of something that enters inside of the gut that looks similar to portions of your body that your body then creates antibodies to. And then there's a cross reactivity between. So as your body's attacking, whatever entered into it, it cross reacts with, let's say, if it's your joints, maybe it's rheumatoid arthritis. If it's your thyroid, maybe it's Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or if it's your nerve cells, maybe it's MS or whatever, right? But that's this idea of molecular mimicry. So obviously that's something that we definitely want to be cognizant of um, as a patient and something that's very important. Now, another topic I want to talk about kind of while we're on the topic of the gut, what do you think about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and small um, intestinal fungal overgrowth syndromes? Are these things that you see commonly among patients with Hashimoto's? Um, or do they accompany the leaky gut or do you say, let's focus more on just fixing the gut themselves, fixing the input, which is the food, heal the gut lining. And then things kind of take care of itself down the line. How are you thinking about that? No,
1: definitely. Like, you know, there is a big, you know, like, you know, issue with the, you know, uh, the, the SIBO, you know, like, which is the overgrowth of bacteria as well as the fungal overgrowth mm-hmm. time. And again, you know, like the, we see that very common. Especially the candida is a big problem, you know, with a with, with big with trigger for Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. Again, candida, you know, is undetected for a long time in the gut. You know, again, mm-hmm. molecular mimicry is a big issue with candida. You know, immune dysfunction is another big issue with candida mm-hmm. and hiding and producing endotoxins, you know, in our body and gut. And that again leads to the destruction, you know, of our leaky gut as well as the, the thyroid gland itself. Is a big issue with candida, so again, underappreciated thing. You know, candida a lot of conventional doctors definitely will poo poo it out, like okay, right. that's not a real thing, so mm-hmm. certainly that is need to be addressed. And even functional medicine doctors kind of you know underappreciate sometimes, okay, well, you know, because it's difficult to find candida, yeah. Uh, because if we check the gut, you know, like sometimes the candida doesn't grow, but you know, we if we have to look for all different ways, you know. So, I recommend checking candida, not only in the gut, but also through organic acid, as well as, you know, to blood work, to check for the antibodies of candida too, and then make a determination whether that person has it or not. Because unless candida is addressed, you know, the immune dysfunction cannot be improved because the candida will come to continue hijack the immune dysfunction and go again to the inflammation side of it. So that's something need to be addressed. Same with the SIBO, that unless we address the bacteria and, you know, get them better, again, people do not feel better. Because if the gut is not functioning, doesn't matter how many supplements I'm going to give them, they're not able to absorb it properly. And then again, that doesn't help me out inside the body. So we need to address those things along with addressing obviously the inflammation and the thyroid itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense physiologically when we talk about gut dysfunction in the setting of anybody who has a thyroid disease, a thyroid condition, because the, the thyroid itself helps with the prokinetics of the bowel the bowels itself, right? So if you have low thyroid function, low T3, low T4, primarily T3, but we'll say in general, um, as you damage the thyroid and those levels reduce, you're going to have a slowing down of the intestinal tract. And what does that mean? constipation, right? Number one, which is a huge symptom, which as you mentioned, it means you can't eliminate the things you need to eliminate. Um, Number two, you're going to set the stage for the overgrowth of things that shouldn't be growing there, right? So you have the overgrowth of fungal, uh, if it's small intestinal fungal overgrowth, or the overgrowth of bacteria in the form of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And um, so really important to this equation is not only treating the gut, uh, eliminating the triggers which go into the gut, right, which allow candida to grow and they feed off of certain things, right, the prebiotics and so on. You have to to, uh, treat the thyroid, which is Um, controlling the gut function. You have to control the input, which is coming into it. You have to reduce the inflammation. You have to heal the gut lining. You know, I just want to talk about this, like kind of putting it all together because from the perspective of the patient, it it can be a little bit complicated, right? Like this, this is why it's more than just touching on the gut, right? It's, it's a a lot of things that have to work together in order to get that, that sort of um, ironed out, which kind of brings me to the next topic. So we talked about the immune aspect. Let's talk about the thyroid function itself. So when we're talking about reversing Hashimoto's, how are you thinking about targeting specifically thyroid function itself, because we know that patients with Hashimoto's, most of them end up with hypothyroidism, meaning they have low thyroid function. Now, yes, some people do have hyperthyroidism and people will obviously fluctuate over time, but in the setting, I guess we can talk about kind of all that, but how do you think about thyroid function? How are you addressing thyroid function specifically? So people can get an alleviation of those symptoms, hair loss, weight gain, you know, constipation, et cetera. How are you thinking about the thyroid aspect?
1: Yeah, so again, so I'll again uh, like to address things in a more comprehensive fashion by kind of in, incorporating and using each and everything that we have. So the diet again plays an important role. We know that certain foods can help you support your thyroid gland, mm-hmm. especially you know like you know a lot of vegetables, which again you know like a lot of conventional doctors will say, oh you know like don't eat this vegetable or that vegetable, you know because it's go- they are goitrogens, they are going to hurt mm-hmm. your thyroid and things. Mm-hmm. New research again suggests that you know okay, well you know those actually you know like uh, foods. But vegetables are much more helpful for your thyroid gland. Mm -hmm. So a lot of vegetables, especially green leafy ones to get all the antioxidants is very important. Good quality protein is very important to support a thyroid gland to help them function in, Mm -hmm. in a normal fashion and then good quality fats. Again, one of those things which are lacking in a lot of our patients, you know, like, in our diet is good quality fats, especially yeah. like good quality fish, omega-3 fatty acids, you know, like, you know, through chia seeds or flax seeds, you know, olive oil, you know, coconut oil, all those good fats that we need, you know, in our body is lacking because that again supports the thyroid function. So that's the diet aspect that, you know, definitely needs to be optimized for supporting the thyroid gland. Then becomes the supplements, you know, like that can be helpful for the thyroid. So we have certain supplements, again, research has shown that they are wonderful for supporting the thyroid functioning, like zinc, like selenium, like magnesium, the B vitamins that we have. Then we have those adaptogens like ashwagandha, you know, like, which has, again, all together can support your thyroid gland. So that's the second thing that we use to kind of, you know, help the thyroid gland. Now, in case the thyroid needs some help or support in that, so then, you know, we can always use natural forms of thyroid hormones to supplement them or help them out to function the thyroid in an optimal fashion. So that's another thing that we use a lot of times.
0: No, that's really good. I have a couple, I took a couple notes here that I want to touch base on because I I see a lot of um, questions about particular things and I want to get your input on them. So one of them is ashwagandha. So uh, I'm in agreement with you that I think ashwagandha is very beneficial for most thyroid patients, but especially in the setting of Hashimoto's, there's some group of people who who I'm not for sure why exactly, I mean, I guess I could come up with a reason as to why, but they believe that ashwagandha is harmful and should be avoided in those people with Hashimoto's with under the, the, the idea that, well, it falls into the family of nightshades. And therefore, if you're following a strict AIP diet, it should be avoided. Um, and that's not really what I see. I see ashwagandha being far and away beneficial for probably 99% of patients with Hashimoto's, but I wanted to get your input on that. So what do you think about ashwagandha um, in the setting of treating Hashimoto specifically? And then how do you sort of, how do you sort of put those two things together where it's, it it is potentially in the nightshade family. Is that something you see as a problem or not? You know, what's your experience with that?
1: As you said, you know, like 70 to 80% of my clients will tolerate ashwagandha really well, but Mm -hmm. there are like, you know, 20, 30% who will not tolerate it. Because exactly. as soon as they will take ashwagandha they will actually feel much more hyper reactive like actually affecting their thyroid and going instead of hypo they're causing them to go into hyper phase so they get very anxious with it you know like you know because ashwagandha is very calming so they're mm-hmm. actually going opposite so that tells me that ashwagandha is basically triggering you know their hashimoto's mm-hmm. and causing excessive thyroid hormone release which we are seeing you know in, a, in the initial phases of hashimoto's and those are the patients that okay like you know that's let's not use ashwagandha in your case because your body's not reacting to it. Unfortunately, we don't have a way to know which person is going to react to it or not. Right. You know, there are no labs which can certainly say, okay, yes, you know, avoid it or, or no, don't like you know, use it or so. So mm-hmm. it is basically like I just have to use it. And I always tell my patients, if you feel worse on it, then please let me know.
0: Yeah. I, I exact the same way. I just wanted to bring that up because. You know, there, there seems to be some rules of thumb that exist out there among Hashimoto's patients. And one of those, for whatever reason, tends to be that ashwagandha should be avoided in patients with Hashimoto's. And in my experience, that tends to not be true. It sounds like that's, uh, you're in agreement with that. Now, do you see a problem with nightshades sort of in general? I know we're hopping back to the food aspect of, um, here for a second, but do you, do you think that nightshades ought to be avoided by patients with Hashimoto's? Is that a common trigger that you see with food sensitivities?
1: Sometimes, yes. You know, especially if the Hashimoto's is accompanying with a mast cell disorder or histamine intolerances, Good. then I definitely tell them to use kind of a stay away from the nightshade. But a lot of people who do not have those issues, you know, sometimes they can tolerate nightshades. So we generally start off with, you know, like having them avoid the nightshades. But then, when, you know, we, we go like after four to six weeks, we give them a trial of, okay, why don't you introduce nightshades and see how you do? Okay. And if they're doing fine, then we will continue with that. But if people have more sensitivity issues that, you know, there are multiple chemical sensitivity problems Mm -hmm. or, you know, histamine intolerances, then certainly we have them avoid nightshades.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, when you're doing that um, and you're talking about diets here for a second, um, another really popular sort of diet is the autoimmune protocol or AIP diet. Um, Are you a proponent of using this type of diet in patients with Hashimoto's?
1: So AIP has some good components to it, you know, like again, you know, like what I do is that I basically, every client for me is a personalized client. So I nitpick for that particular client. Mm -hmm. So AIP definitely has good things, you know, which which promotes like a lot of vegetables, avoiding, you know, like bad things. Mm -hmm. But AIP also sometimes, you know, avoid a little bit more things that, you know, that becomes very constrictive for most of my clients. Like they avoid completely like, you know, lentils, legumes, all kinds of grains and all the nightshades, everything. So then most of my clients are just left with nothing to eat. Right. And we, you know, we see like some issues with that. Mm. So for me, you know, like, especially a lot of my clients are vegan or vegetarian. So for mm. them, if we avoid legumes and lentils completely, yeah. then the source of protein is literally gone. Yeah. So those patients, I, I say that, okay, legumes and lentils are okay. I'm always cognizant about the lectins. So then, you mm. know, we... Work on them to reduce the lectins level by soaking them, you know, by pressure cooking them. So all those things can reduce the lectin levels Mm -hmm. and if they're still reacting to it. Then obviously we stay away from it, but most of them can tolerate it. Mm -hmm. So I use, I definitely appreciate a lot of things about the AIP diet, but I not follow it completely from everything.
0: Yeah, and I, that tends to be my experience as well. I think the AIP has a lot of potential value if you're a patient and you don't have the guidance of somebody that has the knowledge that like you have, right? Because you're like you're basically saying, okay, well, I'm not really sure. You know, I, I maybe I can't test them for heavy metals. Maybe I can't. Maybe I don't know about the detoxification pathways. Maybe I don't know about mitochondrial function. But I can, you know, that's something that I can control. And so I think that leads a lot of patients down that path. Um, I do see problems with it, especially with the reintroduction of foods. And I think part of the issue with only treating the diet is that you're missing nutrient replacement of deficiencies that exist. You're missing the, the um, treating the thyroid function itself as well. And these things all kind of have to be done simultaneously or at least in you know sequence with one another if you want to see lasting results. So uh, for that reason, I'm kind of the same as you. I'm not, I'm not, I don't generally recommend the AIP diet, although I have recommended it in the past. You know, I tend to use it for people who have multiple autoimmune conditions. So if someone's got vitiligo and Hashimoto's and, you know, ITP or something like that, then maybe I'll think about using something that's a little more extreme because in that case, I'm thinking, okay, this person has just broad reactivity to a lot of different types of foods. And maybe this is a good way to sort of reset that gut, reset, you know, start from a, from a fresh slate, so to speak. And then we can kind of build on top of there and see what works and what doesn't. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about that. One more, one more question about uh, while we're on the topic of, you talked about food, um, you talked about proteins. So when you mentioned eating good, the good proteins, are you primarily interested in getting um, tyrosine in there? Or uh, is that the amino acid you're looking for? Or are you just looking for a broad array of amino acids? What's sort of the logic there um, in regards to making sure you have good uh, uh, amino acid profile and good protein source?
1: Right. Definitely. Like, you know, we want to have all the amino acids that are needed by our body. So that's the first priority. And then obviously getting the, as much tyrosine as possible, because again, that can definitely improve the thyroid function. So in that aspect, you know, like, you know, getting organic, like, you know, chicken or like, you know, having fishes, you know, which are mercury free, you know, like wild caught are wonderful ways of doing it. And for vegan and vegetarian, obviously then we are left with only unfortunately legumes or lentils or nuts and seeds, you know, which can be chia seeds or flax seeds, you know, which, you know, can be done. So that's where definitely good quality protein, clean protein, is very
0: important. Okay, and and I I also agree. I also think there's a, a lot, of, you know, we have sort of these these shifts in culture where it's like okay, certain certain uh, groupings or macromolecules are demonized. You know, fat was you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, fat was like the bad thing. And then, you know, carbs are kind of the bad thing. And now, you know, I, I'm just wondering if it will eventually switch. I, at one point, protein was the bad thing because it simulated mTOR, right? And it was, you know, mess with your aging pathway. So, you know, we kind of shift through all these things simultaneously. And as you mentioned, it really is a personalized approach, which I think is the most important thing because some people do better on more fat. Some people do better on more carbs. Some people do better on more protein and figuring out where you kind of fit into that, I think is the most important thing. Is But it's but it's on an individual basis. I don't think you can come out and say, Broadly speaking, this is the diet that patients with Hashimoto's need to consume, you know, like 100% of patients with Hashimoto's should be consuming 30% fat, 40% carbs, 30% protein, something like that, right? You know, I'm just obviously making that up. But I, I think it really needs to be individualized, which is really where you get the benefit of having someone who understands the complexities of all these things put together. Um, so I appreciate that. that. you. Uh, the, the expanding on that topic. Now, one thing I wanted to mention as we talk about supplements that we, this is always a somewhat of a controversial topic and that is of iodine. So where do you sort of sit on the use of iodine in the setting of Hashimoto's? Um, are you generally for or against or is it an individual sort of basis? Like where do you sit on that?
1: So again, you know, like, you know, iodine, as you said, is such a controversial thing. And, you know, like, you know, too, too little of iodine definitely causes Hashimoto's. Too mm-hmm. much of it's, you know, causing Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. The problem that I encounter most of the time is that we do not have a perfect test to check for iodine in persons. You know, like, you know, yeah. blood test is not accurate. You know, even 24-hour urine iodine, first of all, it's such a cumbersome test to do. Mm-hmm. And again, it can give us some indication, but again, it's not a perfect test. So what I've come to conclusion is that, you know, I generally try to give iodine, you know, not as a supplement form, but as a food form. Mm-hmm. So I encourage all of my folks, if they can tolerate the food, which are high in iodine in a lot of seafoods, you know, like the sea uh, vegetables and things, mm-hmm. you know, they can use it. Then that's what I recommend doing them. So I can give them enough iodine and I'm not overdoing it because a lot of those supplements, you know, like will have a lot of iodine, which can be huge quantities. Mm-hmm. And plus sometimes they might be getting it from the food aspect too. So I've seen the other ways of things. So I'm on the more conservative side. So I generally try to get it as much from the food rather than the supplements. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, and I think that's a, a really good approach, to be honest. Um, I, I have you know no issues with that approach. My, my general approach has been, I like to have a quantification of, of how much you're getting. And sometimes some of the seafoods have variability in terms of how much is in you know per quantity, per gram or whatever. And then I also, um, sometimes there's a, uh, uh, let's say, a disagreement in terms of how much or maybe a misunderstanding of how much people are actually eating right it's cuz we don't think about generally our foods in terms of grams um and it's like okay did i eat 2 or 3 grams of seaweed and if 1 gram has 50 micrograms and i consume 4 grams you, you know it's kind of it kind of gets confusing so i do like the idea of supplementation just so that you can get an exact amount um by not getting too much or too little but i absolutely appreciate the idea of getting it naturally from your food if you can right that makes a lot of sense that's kind of how how it's been forever and i think that that's a great approach um but it sounds like um and i kind of fit in this camp too that that too little bad too much bad somewhere in the middle needs to be kind of where we're at some sort of goldilocks zone and figuring that out can be difficult and i just did a long blog post and video on the topic of iodine testing there really isn't a good test so if you're listening to this um like dr gupta said there there really isn't a good one um there are several different ways to check for it but all of them have their inconsistencies and inaccuracies and they don't always give you the information you think you're getting and one of the most frustrating things that i see on my end is people will say oh i ordered this test Um, And I have too much of this thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you got to make sure the test is actually accurate. There there are a whole different ways to test for nutrients and and other things in the body mold even, but they don't always give you the information you think you're getting from them. And so the interpretation of those results are, it's very important. Um, Did you have anything to add on that before we go to the next topic or is that? Pretty much good. I think that's that's actually
1: accurate. You know, okay. like you know, people get really get worried once when they, they they see the result of myodine is so high. Okay, that's the reason mm-hmm. I've got Hashimoto's. You know, right. this, this particular doctor or like this particular person kind of gave me Hashimoto's. I said, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. You already had Hashimoto's. Yes, you know, like this test is not the perfect, but you know, you have to interpret the test in the right manner. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's very important because you know, like right now we are in an age that patients can order the testing on their own, and you know, mm-hmm. they get spit out a lot of information which are just kind of you know uh, from a computer spitting out the information And a lot of people start using those and implementing those but what they don't realize is that this can be actually harmful you know if you use those in because these supplements are not just kind of candies that people can you know eat and you know, they'll they have no effects on their body yeah. so i've seen people actually getting worse by trying these protocols and doing things on their own when they don't know what they're doing So very important to work with a professional or at least get the information that you should be getting before, you know, you do things on your own.
0: 100% agree. And I I have absolutely seen people that, that cause more harm than good in trying things. Absolutely. Um, And it sounds like you have as well. Let's, let's move on to the topic of thyroid medication. So we talked, I think we talked a lot of good things about root causes, about managing those root causes, the various types. And by the way, for anyone listening here, I know we've been going for like about 50 minutes, but we haven't even touched on all of them, right? We haven't even gone deep into, we only went deep into like one or two of them even. So there are plenty of other ones. And um, I, I you, you go much deeper in your book, right? We, we, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but. Yeah. So if you you want a more in-depth explanation of these root causes, sort of how they branch off and the treatments that are necessary, definitely check out Dr. Gupta's book. Um, We'll have a reference to that and a link to that below at the end of this thing. But I want to talk about thyroid medication here for a second. So you kind of touched on that when we talked about the thyroid component. Where does thyroid medication fit into this whole thing of treating Hashimoto's to you? Do you consider it a treatment to Hashimoto's? Because I have seen some people with antibody reduction as a result of using it. Um, I've also seen people who try to avoid natural desiccated thyroid with the idea that perhaps it simulates the immune system and simulates the antibody production. Um, or are you just using it as a way to, let's say, um, manage symptoms to boost up thyroid function until you can sort of naturally uh, improve thyroid function through the therapies we talked about? Where do you kind of sit on that?
1: So I think you know, like I determine it again on a person-to-person basis, depending on where they are in the disease process. If they're very early in the disease process, the medicines are very low dosage that is needed. Mm-hmm. I generally don't start them on medicines, because those people actually we have an opportunity to safeguard their thyroid, and we can actually reset the thyroid back to normal so that it can function on their own. Mm-hmm. Now, some people come to see me. Okay, I have this Hashimoto's for 10 years or 20 years. Most of the time, their thyroid is almost destroyed. Mm-hmm. So they will need some kind of medicine on board to kind of support the thyroid hormone that is needed for their body for various reasons about it. Then obviously mm-hmm. I go with a natural approach, you know, of natural desiccated thyroid, which has a both the T3 and the T4, and which is good for them. Mm-hmm. And I, what I've seen is that, you know, if, you know, like the immune function thing, you know, that we get worried about, okay, well, the natural desiccated thyroid sometimes can, you know, trigger an immune response. We don't see it very often. We see it only in situations, again, when the body is not have been prepared for it. Mm -hmm. You know, bodies who who are very inflamed already, already have leaky gut, already are toxic. Those are the, you know, like people who will get triggered, you know, by doing those desiccated thyroid. But if you address the other issues and then, you know, we do the desiccated thyroid along with it, those people never react to them and actually do good with that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that's definitely what I've seen as well. Um, In the beginning, I, I sort of just put if anyone had low thyroid function when I was first starting practicing, uh, I'm not practicing anymore, but when I initially started, I would just throw everyone on NDT. And I would see occasionally, very rarely, uh, starting someone on NDT would spike antibodies. Um, And so uh, I have seen it. And usually in those situations back then when I didn't know that much, I'd be like, okay, well, let's take it with some enzymes. Let's help with the digestion. I thought it was a digestion issue. And I'm like, okay, well, let's try it with some enzymes, help things break down um, and see if that works. But it definitely has the potential to do that. But I think it's pretty exceedingly rare. And I think you hit the nail on the head when when you said, I think it is a result of other issues that are untreated, right? I think it's the, the gut that been, hasn't been addressed appropriately or digestive issues or uh, inflammation that exists there already. Um, and even if it does, there are other still medications that you can use. So I think um, if I could distill essentially what you said, you said in the beginning, low doses, if anything are necessary, but the whole point is should be to try and fix the immune aspect to reduce the damage on the thyroid so that it can function by itself, right? That's, that's generally the idea if, I, if I'm following that correctly.
1: That's yeah. correct. You know, as I said, initially, that, that works really good for my clients and we can mm-hmm. do it. But, you know, once that initial phase is gone for the long term basis, if the patient are coming from after like 10 plus years or their medications are like more than 100 mics, you know, of daily mm-hmm. basis, then those are the patients that they definitely need some kind of medicine. They're definitely going to be lower dosage, mm-hmm. but definitely some kind of medicine on
0: board. Yeah. Because over time, if Hashimoto's is left untreated, it does result in some element, some amount of permanent damage to the thyroid gland, which is evidence, or you can see, on ultrasonography. So if you look at an ultrasound and you see a, a, a atrophied thyroid gland, that's usually evidence that some destruction has occurred. And as far as we know, there are some salvageable, salvageable amount of thyroid tissue that exists when it's inflamed, but sometimes it can be permanently destroyed. And to my knowledge, there are some potential uh, emerging therapies that may be used to help regrow some tissues, but there's no good therapy, as far as I'm aware, that helps regrow thyroid gland tissue in those settings, which means you'll end up on thyroid medication. So moral of the story is catch your Hashimoto's early, make sure you get tested for it and get treatment as aggressive as you possibly can in the beginning. So you don't have to live that life downstream. As you kind of agree with that's the general statement? Absolutely, yes. All right, let's do, let's do this. Let's talk about antibodies for a second because uh, I think this is a really important thing that a lot of people uh, want to know about. And then we'll kind of close up here. Um, so when you talk about antibodies, you mentioned in the beginning that one of the ways that you're kind of or at least this is what I got from it. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the ways that you kind of help determine if somebody is responding to treatment is you're tracking these antibody levels. So in the case of high antibodies, you would you would kind of you can kind of make the assumption that the immune system is dysregulated and something's going on that needs to be addressed. And as you do treatments, as you fix a diet, treat a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, pr- produce, give thyroid medication, et cetera, um, detoxification, you should see these antibodies dropping. So now is that sort of how you're thinking about the, the antibodies and how you're using them as a lab metric to determine successive treatments? Um, or or if it's some other way, let me know. I'm, I'm interested to hear how you kind of do that.
1: Absolutely. Yes. You know, when people come to see me, you know, like, you know, their antibody levels are really high in thousands or something. And I said, okay, let's start working on other things. And this will be a good marker for us to know actually how we are doing and how your body is responding to this particular kind of treatment. And we do see like, you know, like the antibody level starts going down very sweetly, you know, over the course of like next four to six months, when the people start working with us. And again, that is a sign that, okay, well, you know, like we are, we are the thyroid is not getting destroyed and the immune dysfunction is going away. So that made that, and that's the same time we are actually seeing that the requirement of the thyroid medicine also decreases mm-hmm. because now they're actually body or the thyroid can actually produce their own thyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. So definitely I follow those antibody levels. Now the problem, what happens is that, you know, a lot of people, when they come to see us or they're thinking about is, okay, my antibody levels should come back all the way to zero. But necessarily that doesn't happen all the time, but even the antibody levels are within that acceptable range. That is great. Because some you know amount of antibodies are still present because you know the thyroid is a dynamic process. It is changing each and every day. So you know, like you know some antibody levels are still present, but from let's say 2,000 or 3,000 of TPO antibodies, if the antibody level comes down to all the way to 30 or even 100, that's a big drop that we are seeing and we are already safeguarding your thyroid that way. So definitely following those antibodies and we see that you know they are going down uh, very beautifully in that situation.
0: And this is not the way that conventional doctors look at this. You know, if they check antibodies, it's maybe one time. Maybe, and it 's never to, to look back again, right, and so that's really important from the perspective of patients. I want you to to gather this if you 're listening to this. checking your antibodies at least somewhat regularly is important because it does kind of it can help guide treatment. you know having said that, I do see some discordance in antibody levels and, and symptoms, even you know I've seen people where antibodies levels stay high, but they symptomatically return almost to normal, and so I don't know that antibodies can be tracked at one hundred percent, but I think generally the rule that I follow is the lower the antibodies, the better I think You know, physiologically, I think that's a good thing to sort of aim for, a good thing to look at. Um, But I I don't think in every single case that can be, your hat can be hanged on antibodies as a sole marker of how well you're doing. Is that a fair statement?
1: Exactly. And that's what I mentioned that, you know, some people, you know, like their antibody levels come down and they're feeling good. But they said, oh, but my antibody levels are still present. I said, well, I'm not just eating a lab. For me, I'm treating a person. So you tell me how you're feeling. If you're feeling still crappy, then definitely there's a lot of work we still need to do. But if you're feeling perfectly fine that your body should be and antibody levels are going down, then that's a great news. That means, you know, you're doing great. Mm -hmm. So the antibody levels are just one way for us to monitor things, how it is going, but that's not the only way. Mm -hmm. So that is very important that people should know about it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Gupta, this has been a treat. I would, I have to say you are very knowledgeable on this subject. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, um, awesome to get your input and to see how you're treating, uh, for those people who are listening to this, who want to, who want to learn more about you. So we have, you are practicing, you have a clinic, correct. And then you have your, your book as well. So can you tell people where they can find you, where they can get a hold of you if they want to, uh, um, learn more about you or potentially become a, a patient or purchase your book?
1: Absolutely. So actually, you know, like we are running a virtual clinic now. So we have a virtual functional medicine practice. So people from all over the country or all over the world can actually work with us wherever they are. We have patients from all over the the world that they are working with us. It's, it's very seamless process. They can go on my website called anshulguptamd.com okay. And right now, actually we are offering like free evaluations calls for clients who want to sign up with us okay. so that they can understand the process that is involved in working with us
0: mm-hmm. so that,
1: you know, they can do that. So they can just go on a website, click on the link where it says free evaluation call and they can book the evaluation call with me so okay. that they have an idea with us.
0: I, I found all... that link. I'll I'll link it below for you.
1: Great. Wonderful. And obviously my book is on Amazon. So people can buy it from there, whether the Kindle version or the book version that they want to do that. And then obviously I'm on social media, like Instagram, and I do have a YouTube channel. So people want to kind of like, you know, no more information about that, you know, we can certainly like, you know, find me over
0: there. Okay, perfect. So I'll include the link down below, uh, if you want to do the consult with uh, Dr. Gupta, and we'll link to his Amazon book. And I just, again, I have to say, there are a lot of people that treat Hashimoto's, a lot of people that treat thyroid problems. Um, And I think there are different approaches to take to doing that. But I think I honestly, very rarely do I agree with so much of one person. Uh, Dr. Gupta, I have to say, I agree with you know, essentially everything that you've said. So I could tell that you're well uh, experienced on the subject, well read on the subject. So for those listening as well, I would have to say that. So this is this is a good opportunity for anybody who's who's interested in this sort of uh, this co- sort of comprehensive approach. I think certain people may be really good at one aspect, but putting it together, I think is really the key. You know, having the intuition, figuring out what what each, each individual patient needs. And I try to preach that as much as I can. There's no there's no one thing that thyroid patients need. Every single person is different. Every single person needs different uh, medication or not. Or people have different philosophies in terms of what they want to or how they want to be treated? Do they want to do mostly natural? Do they, you know, do they have dietary restrictions like you mentioned? Are, are they vegan? Are they vegetarian? Like all these things play a role in how treatment must occur. And so I, I anyway, I just really appreciate that approach. Um, and as I mentioned, I will definitely include the links down uh, below. Do you have any parting messages before we uh, sign off here, Dr. Gupta?
1: I just want to let each and every Hashimoto's patients is that don't let anybody tell you that you have to live this way with a poor quality of life the, you know in the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. there is hope for you. So you just have to do the right things. And if you do the right things, take the right supplements and work in a stepwise manner, then a quality of life could be better. And there is
0: hope for you to get better. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for those parting words. Um, It's been a pleasure chatting with you and uh, we'll have to have you on again sometime.
1: Oh, absolutely. Love being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity for being here. You're doing great work. I really appreciate your information, your knowledge. Um, You are really great.
0: Thank you.